The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 448. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Brian McClendon Show. Glad to be back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. You can find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. It's always free to enroll. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, and you get the best deals on new and forthcoming courses. You can also go to brianmcclanahan.com, click on that support tab. You can throw a few pennies my way, help keep these lights on, help keep the podcast going. You can purchase one of my books. I've got seven of those. A new book is going to be coming out probably early June. Don't have the exact date yet. Pay attention, listen to this podcast, I'll let you know. But you're going to want to get that too, so that's a great way to support the show. Also, click on that shop tab while you're at brianmcclanahan.com. You can get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. Go to Learn True, T-R-U-E, learntruehistory.com. That's my affiliate link for Tom Woods Liberty Classroom. I teach there with Tom and a lot of great instructors as well. So lots of great ways to support the show. But, of course, as always, share the podcast around on social media. Rate it wherever you get your podcasts. Let people know you're listening to the show and you're thinking locally and acting locally. That's how we grow the audience. That's how we really get this message of taking control of your own political future. That's how you do it. All right. Well, I'm going to talk about something. This is um, an article that was written for Reason. Uh, reason.com. It's published on May 19th by Josh Blackman. This is in the legal section of Reason. Now, Reason, of course, is a left-wing libertarian site. Uh, but their legal section is interesting. And... Uh, this is a, a, a piece that I think gets to the heart of the problem with the Supreme Court. Now, last week, the left was going bananas because we had a couple of Supreme Court decisions that really riled them up. And it was because the threat, the fear, this is where I've talked about court packing, and I've said that court packing is going to be going to happen. I predicted this if, if, the Supreme Court does its job and rolls back some of the stupidity of the last 40 years or so of the court. An unconstitutional expansion of, of court power and also of destroying the, the, the Federal Republic, right? So these are usurpations. I think Kevin Gutzman had the term correct. It's usurpations that we're looking at here. So what's happening now is if the court really does what it's supposed to do and roll all these things back, the left is going to look at this as a threat to its power, because this is what it is, and it's going to try to pack the court. Joe Biden would be on board with it. And this, is, see, this is where I don't know what's going to happen. I, I think that it's, it's going to happen. You're, you're going to get a push by the Democrats to do it. I think that they're not going to be able to get it through the Senate, but you're going to have more noise made about this. Should the court do its job and roll back all this abusive centralization that we've seen that's been created by the court? One of the main issues, of course, is now the court is going to take up a Roe v. Wade bill 
and probably rule on that. I think that they would rule on it near the end of the year is what I understand by October. I think you're going to see a ruling on it. So they're going to hear it. Now, is this going to be a situation like we saw in the 1930s when we had a supposedly conservative court? Then, oh, lo and behold, Franklin Roosevelt threatens to expand the court and they start ruling with Franklin Roosevelt. So are we going to see this? Because the left is making some noise right now about this. Now, Biden hasn't come out and said anything yet. But are we going to see a situation where, well, the left makes enough noise because of this, this potential decision and the, and the conservative, quote-unquote, conservative majority doesn't do what they're supposed to do, which is roll back the centralization of power in, in Washington, D.C., I mean, unconstitutional expansion of power. This is what they're supposed to do in this particular case. And they don't do it because there's a threat of expanding the court, meaning that the court really isn't independent to begin with. Look, let me dispel a couple of myths here. The court has always been political. It's never been non-political. It always has been political. The idea of an independent court has never really been the case, and it's never really been the case because the court has always been tied into politics in one way or another. I mean, John Marshall was a Federalist who hated the Democratic Republicans, and he ruled that way as Supreme Court Chief Justice. And he, I mean, if you look at the decisions made, and he was trying to corral other judges on the court into that way of thinking, I mean, this is what you're getting. The court has always been political. I guess you could say in the first part, of the, before Marshall became Chief Justice, you had a court that was not necessarily as political. I think there was a real attempt in, at that particular time when you look at the Washington administration, even into uh, the first part of the Adams administration, to have a real nonpartisan court you didn't have majority and minority opinions. You didn't have any of that. Each judge gave their own opinion. You had to sort through it to figure things out. I mean, this was different. Once John Marshall gets there, though, and of course that is John Adams' most important contribution to the general government and appointing John Adams chief justice, if, if that hadn't happened, you would have seen a Virginian as chief justice and the entire nature of the general government would have been changed forever. If Spencer Rowan, had been made Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. All those Marshall decisions, which have done everything to... I mean, look, if you had seen Spencer Rowan on the court as Chief Justice, we, would not, we, we wouldn't have had McCulloch v. Maryland at all. You wouldn't have had it. I think the court goes against it then, and you don't see an expansion of the Necessary and Proper Clause. You don't see the use of judicial review the way you see it now. None of that stuff happens. You wouldn't have seen Cohen's v. Virginia, which was a disastrous case. None of that stuff would have happened. So the court has always been biased. It's always been ideological. And the fact is, this current debate is the left, and particularly Justice Kagan, is upset with the fact that the conservatives on the bench are rolling back some of the decisions made during the war in court. I'm going to read this piece because it gets right into it. This is exactly the problem. And I pointed this out on Twitter. If you follow me on Twitter, I said it. Look, the, the real issue here is these progressives are whining about something they've been doing for the last several decades. This is what they're whining about. They're whining about something they had been doing and they did with impunity during the 20th century. 
So the title is, Let's Talk About Stare Decisis on the Warren Court. Gorsuch. The dissent may prefer decisions within a particular 30-year window. This is the important part. You see, the left knows that without that Warren Court, they don't have a leg to stand on in any of this stuff. And they don't like decisions overturning other decisions that they like. This is the real issue. So, the stare decisis works for them when it's of a decision they like. But if it's not one they like, they're able, they're just willing to get rid of any any precedent. Precedent doesn't matter. Stare decisis is another word for precedent. So I'm going to use that. They want to follow court precedent. They only like it if the precedent works for them. This is written by Josh Blackman. Edward V. Vinoy is a fascinating case. It reveals raw fractures on the court between Justice Kagan and Justice Kavanaugh. And I would add Chief Justice John Roberts. However, perhaps the most tiring aspect of the case is the caterwauling about stare decisis, or precedent. At this point, Justice Kagan needs to prepare a macro. Her copy-and-paste dissents about precedent are repetitive. She has made her point and can only repeat it over and over again. Still, I thought Justice Gorsuch had a poignant response. Last year, I joked that stare decisis is an old Latin phrase that means, let the decisions of the Warren Court stand. Gorsuch seems to agree. He wrote, quote, the dissent criticizes today's decision as a departure from modern habeas precedent. But the dissent's history is selective. The dissent champions decisions from the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, but it disregards how those decisions de- departed from a century of this court's precedents and the common law before that time period. At the same time, the dissent's account overlooks this court's precedents, refusing to afford retroactive application in every case since the 1980s. The dissent may prefer decisions within a particular 30-year window, but it is too much to say this preference is required to respect precedent, stare decisis. This is exactly right. You see, the progressives love to not rep- not go along with precedent if it, if it goes against their worldview. For example, the slaughterhouse cases, which established that the 14th Amendment was not an amendment that incorporated the Bill of Rights against the states. It's clear, right? The 14th Amendment was very narrowly designed to ensure that certain aspects of civil rights were granted on a federal level. But that's it. The states still had wide latitude to do all kinds of things. So, and it's, look, they love to get rid of that. They love to say, well, the 14th Amendment incorporates the Bill of Rights. No, 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 no. Civil liberties, if you want to use a better term. It doesn't. And the court made it clear that was the case. But yet we get to this mid-20th century, and of course Hugo Black is a big part of that, and then you have a ruinous court. They run all over the Constitution. Because these are things that work for them. So Kagan is very locked in. This is what I've said before, that the left really are conservatives. What they want to do is conserve the power that they gained in the post-World War II period, the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And any threat to that power, they're going to do everything they can to, to get rid of that threat. This is why they don't. This is why they want to add D.C. as a state. Because it also gives them control of the court. This is why they want to pack the court. These are the things they're trying to do because they understand 
that if they don't control these things, this is why they want to create a situation where you can have fraud in elections. This is what they want to do. It's what it's, it's the whole mail-in voting thing is about, fraud. That's why they want to do it, because they know that's the only way they can get their agenda through, and particularly the court, because they know the states are always going to do things. This is why they're, they're out there bellowing about the states, trying to ensure that there's election security. Oh, my gosh! This is civil rights revolution all over again. We got to go out there. These these are cosplay civil rights people. There's, I mean, the the situation of the 1950s, and we've seen this. There there are African American leaders that have said, "Hey, look, this is ridiculous to compare what's going on to what happened in the 50s and 60s. Ridiculous. There's not even any comparison. You have people in their 20s, 30s, and even their 40s. They're civil rights cosplayers." They want to go out there and dream that they are out marching in, uh, with Martin Luther King and all these. This is what they want to do, right? This is, this is where we've gotten into this very strange scenario in modern America. We all have to have cosplay. You know, you got people that want to run around like they're in the military. You got people that want to run around like they're in the civil rights movement. You got people that want to run around and do... This is where we are. We're just going to wear costumes and we're going to go, we think we're fighting the man all the time. Or we're, we're refighting these battles, whatever it is. Right. Let me continue with the piece. Justice Kagan and her colleagues are keen to extol the precedents established by the Warren Court, but left unsaid is how those decisions had zero respect for precedent. Hallelujah. That's exactly right. The Warren Court was running roughshod over precedent in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. Randy and I have added a chapter on our criminal procedure for the fourth edition of our casebook. In the process, I reread many of the leading Warren Court crim pro decisions, and I approached these cases from the perspective of constitutional law rather than the nuances of law enforcement. I was struck over and over again at how willy-nilly the Warren Court nullified precedents. There were no discussions of reliance interests. In some cases, cases were overruled in footnotes, almost as an afterthought. Consider a few examples. Now, this is getting into the weeds of some legal stuff here, but I think it's important to point this out. Matt v. Ohio overruled Wolf v. Colorado. In that case, the defendant did not ask the court to overrule the case, but an Amici did. Right, a friend, a friend brief. Today, Amici are invited to defend precedents, but in the 1960s, Amici were invited to attack precedents. The court explained the posture in a footnote. Other issues have been raised on the appeal, on this appeal, but in the view we have taken of the case, they need not be decided. Although appellate choice to urge what may have appeared to be the sure ground for favorable disposition did not insist that Wolf be overruled, the amicus curiae, who was also permitted to participate in the oral argument, did urge the court to overrule Wolf. Justice Harlan dissent lamented the lack of judicial restraint. In overruling the Wolf case, the court, in my opinion, has forgotten the sense of judicial restraint, which, with due regard for stare decisis, is one element that should enter the deci- into deciding whether a past decision of this court should be overruled. Say, hey, look, I mean, we're just willy-nilly running over everything here. And I love that word, willy-nilly. That's all we're doing. We're just destroying everything, and we're just doing it just to do it, because we can This is what Justice Kagan is complaining about. This is what Ian Milheiser and all these little lefties running around are complaining about. This is a threat to their power, and they don't like it. The legend of Gideon v. Wainwright is well known. The court appointed Abe Fortas to represent the famous prisoner, and the court requested both sides to discuss in their briefs and oral arguments the following. 
Should this court's holding in Betts v. Brandy be reconsidered? Again, the court was chomping at the bit to overrule a longstanding precedent. Miranda v. Arizona overruled two precedents. In footnote 48, there was no discussion of stare decisis. In accordance with our holdings today, and Escobedo v. Illinois, Crooker v. California, and Sessiena v. Lagley are not to be followed. So, I mean, they just overruled it in a footnote. Katz v. United States famously overruled Olmstead v. United States. Katz followed that the underpinnings of Olmstead have been so eroded by our subsequent decisions that the trespass doctrine there enunciated can no longer be regarded as controlling. The word stare decisis does not appear in the decision. Justice Black, who, of course, is a major problem. Now, he's, I guess he's opened the Pandora's box and he's, oh my gosh, wait a second here. Justice Black regretted this decision in dissent. It is the court's opinions in this case in Berger, which, for the first time since 1791, when the Fourth Amendment was adopted, have declared that eavesdropping is subject to Fourth Amendment restrictions and that conversations can be seized. I must align myself with all those judges who up to this year have never been able to impugn such a meaning unto the words of the amendment, and so on. But, of course, Justice Black didn't have any problem doing this when it came to what he wanted, his pet projects. This is the problem with the Supreme Court. It's ideological, and they have pet projects, and there's things they like and things they don't like. These are all politically appointed lawyers. And the real point in all this is that the state should be doing this stuff anyways. Why should the decisions of the Warren Court get started at size's value when the Warren Court gave so little deference to earlier long-standing cases? Justice Kagan's preference to stare decisis should extend to cases that Justice Brennan did not join. One final note on Vanoy. Justice Kagan uses the word pre-budding. On the last page or so of its merits decision, before it turns to pre-budding, this dissent, the majority eliminates the watershed exception, declaring it long past time to do so. I checked. First time the word appears in any federal case. I love it. So Blackman, if you don't know, is a constitutional law professor at South Texas College. He's a adjunct at the Cato Institute, president of the Harlan Institute. So this is interesting because what we're seeing now is a debate as to what precedent means, right? So let me let me put this in perspective and what this, this means in many ways and what this in-the-weeds argument really gets to. We have a written constitution in the United States. The United States was a pioneer in written constitutions, state and federal level. The Articles of Confederation was a written constitution. The states all had written constitutions. Once the Articles, of course, the state constitutions predated the Articles of Confederation, most of them. There were a couple of states that just simply carried over their colonial charters and made those their constitutions. So we started getting into constitution writing in the United States. The important part of that was that a written constitution was to replace this unwritten model that we had as subjects of the British Empire. I remember I was on a, an episode, and I've said this before on this podcast, I mentioned the British Constitution. On the, in the, uh, the, uh, it was a radio interview. The radio interviewer was, oh, 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 the, the British don't have a constitution. Uh, no, I said, well, that's interesting because... You know, legal scholars quite frequently talk about the British Constitution. Well, it's uh, it's unwritten. I don't, I don't have one. It's unwritten. Well, this is true. It is unwritten, but they have one. Now, the important thing of that is when you get to an unwritten Constitution, stare decisis is the most important thing you have. 
Custom and precedent becomes your constitution. And Justice Black, for all of his problems, he's in my chapter on a uh, chapter on Black alone and how Alexander Hamilton screwed up America. I carry it forward into Hugo Black. The problem is, and Justice Black points this out, since 1791, this is what every judge has thought about Fourth Amendment protections because this is what we it was understood to mean. Now we get to this point and we've just completely disregarded it. So the written constitution is supposed to bind the government. The written constitution is there to corral the powers. It is a negative document. And this is how it was argued. And this is if you get to my originalist papers courses. I've got parts one and two out now. Three and four are forthcoming. Three is coming in June. Four is coming in August. Okay. You got to get these courses. There's going to, it's a hundred documents. At least 100. Right now it's looking like 101, but maybe more. At least 100 documents, whether it's essays, speeches, public documents in favor of the Constitution. If you can't get through that and see that what the court does today is entirely idiotic, if what the general government today is entirely off the rails, then I have no hope for you. Because this is how the people who supported the Constitution thought it would be interpreted when it was ratified. If you go back and look at all of that, the argument was the Constitution gave certain powers to the central authority, and that's it. It wasn't a positive grant of ex- ex- unlimited powers, of, uh, of loose powers where you could do whatever you wanted. It was an express grant of powers. Everything else was left to the states. And then those powers were limited by the language itself of the document. It is a negative document in that way. It's designed to corral the powers of the general government. These are the only things you can do. You cannot do anything else. If it is silent in the U.S. Constitution for the federal government, then that means you cannot do it. So if it says, if it doesn't say you can charter a bank, you can't charter a bank. And some of this stuff we're not going to like at times, you know, because, well, we want somebody to do this. Somebody's got to step in and do something. But that wasn't how it was designed. The left gets really upset with this stuff. This is what Kagan is upset with because they're reading into the Constitution of things that aren't there. And therefore, once you create that precedent, though, stare decisis steps in from the Warren court. Oh, this is the precedent. But, of course, they ignored decades of precedent before that. You see, this is why the common law is a problem. The common law system, which they have in England, because once you get one court to change it, and then another court comes in, another court comes in, now you've just created a whole situation. Well, which one do we listen to? Well, you got to listen to a written constitution. This is the important part of it all. So what this piece points out is the, is the structural friction in American government. And I get into this in my American constitutions class. It's the structural friction that we have in the American system. You've got written constitutions at the state and federal level. And then you've got the court. And the court just does whatever it wants, and we think that becomes the Constitution. The court didn't create the Constitution. You see, by allowing the court to interpret and extrapolate and do all it does, you're you're creating friction between what a written Constitution is supposed to do and what the courts are doing. This is important. It's why the courts are a disaster. It's why the court was supposed to be the weakest branch of the government. 
Nobody wanted the court having this much power. Nobody. Not even John Marshall said in the ratifying debates that the court would have this much power. The court was supposed to be a referee. The states, if you had Virginia and Maryland, there were dispute over a river. The court could step in and try to handle this. The court was supposed to be the referee. Between states, citizen of one state and another state, the court was supposed to be the referee. And remember the 11th Amendment, which was ratified very quickly after a Supreme Court decision went went overboard. States can't be sued without their consent. State sovereign immunity. These are important issues, ladies and gentlemen. These are things that we need to understand. That friction is created by, really by the court itself and doing things it should not be doing. And that started with John Marshall. It's why and how Alexander Hamilton screwed up America. I begin with Marshall and I run through Marshall and Story and Hugo Black. And I talk about these people because this is where you start getting this stuff. Even the fact that conservatives will run around and say Joseph Story was an originalist is laughable. It's laughable. And that we still teach Joseph Story. It's problematic. So, you want to you want to see some things change? Well, the court should do its job and roll back all this Warren nonsense that was just willy-nilly doing whatever he wanted. Again, I like Blackman, he said this. Willy-nilly, they just did whatever they wanted. You got to roll that stuff back. You got to go back to real federalism. You got to go back to the original Constitution. You roll all that stuff back. The problem is, are the Democrats going to sit back and let this happen, or are they going to try to force their power? This is all about power now. Are they going to try to force their power and say, we're going to expand the court? Republicans wouldn't do anything like that. I'll, I, look, I'll give the Democrats credit for what they are. They are kneecappers. They go out and they're bullies. What they want, they get. They do it all the time. They do it all the time. All right. So, great little piece by Blackman. I like it because it gets into this issue of what's happening with this inherent conflict when the court takes too much power and the Congress could control all this stuff. And they always have been able to. They just won't do it. The Democrats might, though, because they don't care. They're, they are open about their quest for power. We want power. They might as well just make that their campaign slogan. We want power. And we're willing to take it from everybody because we want power. But, of course, they're getting to this myth of the good, the good, the bad, the good guy, the bad guy. And this is, this is part of that. And I'm going to get into that this week, too. I've got a nice little article about that, which I think is fun. And we're going to get into myth-making. But you'll have to wait for that one. So this hope you enjoyed this episode of the Brian McClanahan Show. I'll see you next time for the next one. See you then.